You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't judge George W. Bush until 2031. Or any president, for that matter, at least according to him anyway. So he writes in his memoir, Decision Points. Presidential memoirs are nothing new, but it is always exciting when we get one. Ulysses S. Grant's, which Bush read before writing his own, was legendary. Like Grant, former President Bush writes in a concise, short-sentence, action-verb style that would surprise no one, having listened to him speak for eight years as president. Yeah, while I have some issues with the book, as I would with all presidential memoirs, they're never complete histories, and they are written by a politician who's simultaneously winning favors often in addition to writing history. So I must say, though, this is a cogent description of key decisions of his presidency and betrays none of the short-mindedness that critics often assign to him. Some will probably say that it was ghost-written, but I don't think so. It does appear to be how he speaks and how he thinks. It's simple, it's logical, it's easy to follow. There's good and bad in the book. One thing it does not have a lot of, which which other presidential memoirs uh, do, is a lot of gushing over people in a way of thanking them. The mandate of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is simply to add historical context to current events. So I was planning on reading decision points just simply... Uh, ignoring the personal life and the family life of George W. Bush and talking about uh, his politics and reading about uh, his governorship and his presidency. But I do think that anyone, be they Republican or Democrat, churchgoer or not, will appreciate his faithful decision to quit drinking. And what struck me about it is I, I know that he that he had quit at a late age, but it was a little more than uh, drinking than, than what I had thought. He was a partier. I mean, I think is the clearest way to say it. He didn't drink during the day. He generally did not drink alone. Uh, but he said when he turned 40, Laura Bush had asked him, when was the last time you had a day that you didn't have a drink? And he really couldn't answer. And we weren't talking about just a little sip of wine. He had that you know, we were talking about a couple beers, then maybe uh, wine with dinner, and then, you know, uh, some Seagram 7, apparently, uh, maybe like 7 to 10 drinks a day. And, you know, it'd be hard to label him as an alcoholic. I, I don't really think that was the case. Uh, it, was a, it was a lot, and it was continuous. And, you know, he did find that he was making appro- inappropriate comments to people uh, at dinners. He was being annoying, not really uh, friendly. And he wasn't accomplishing much in his life. And one day, he just quit. He emphasized his faith in making decisions, although he had tried when he was age 30 and wasn't able to do so. But when he was 40, he just simply decided to quit. He puts this first in the book because he sees this is the decision that all the other decisions stemmed from. Because in his view, had he not quit drinking, he just 
simply would not have become governor of Texas or president. He would have just been wasting uh, too much time. I believe this. He was the son of the president. What a lot of critics will say about George W. Bush, and believe me, he's still a hot commodity because his presidency just happened and the country's polarized and, and the like. A lot of people will just say, well, he was the son of the president. That's how he became you know, president. But there are a lot of uh, presidential sons and daughters in history, and you don't just get to be governor, and you certainly don't just get to be president because your father was not in America. We only have two sons that became president uh, John Quincy Adams and uh, George W. Bush, and you have a grandson, Benjamin Harrison. He could have been the president's son. He would have helped his dad out with the, with the campaigns, and after his, his dad lost, you wouldn't have heard of George W. Bush again. I'm no prohibitionist myself, but I think if, if you're drinking or doing any kind of uh, bad habit to the point that you think it's interrupting goals, eh, maybe you could learn something from the former president here. Getting into the talk about politics, one of the surprising things he revealed uh, in the run-up to his discussion of his governorship and presidency is that he wanted Dick Cheney, who would become his vice president, to be his father's vice president in 1992. He wanted his father to sack Dan Quayle and replace him with Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney had been defense secretary during the Bush administration, and, you know, everybody who was attached to the first Gulf War, Colin Powell, uh, Cheney among them, looked very, very good at that time. And so uh, it looked like a good appointment to make. Bush was loyal to his father foremost, and his respect to his father bleeds through the book. He feels that Ross Perot, for instance, beat his father, not Bill Clinton. I would argue the point, polling data and other arguments to make, and I've done so on this program, but... Right now, why mess with a son's pride? As for the 2000 election, he notes that the closeness of the election, he feels, was due to the last-minute discovery of his drinking while intoxicated uh, conviction in Maine. That, in his opinion, is why, you know, while he should have won by, say, five points, you had an election that was decided in the Supreme Court doesn't give much more information about the 2000 election except to tell the narrative that we know. In my short review, no reason not to jump to the classroom on 9-11-01 uh, when all of those tragic events unfolded. As we know, George Bush was visiting a elementary school classroom. He said he was informed that before he walked into the classroom that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. He figured it was an accident. Andy Card had uh, brought this up to him. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It wasn't known the extent of the damage. When he entered the classroom and started uh, reading to the children, Andy Card entered again and told him, a second plane hit the World Trade Center. We were under attack. In his first moment as a war president, he tried to remain calm, and he felt that he had to be calm with the students in front of him, but not just the students in front of him, everyone that would be watching in America, and that he took his time, continued with the classroom, and then left. When he visited the Pentagon, 
eventually the World Trade Center. He felt that the casualties that he witnessed and the damage that he witnessed strengthened his resolve and committed him to making decisions he would need to make. Two points here in the in this event surrounding 2011. One, he refers to Daschle, who Tom Daschle, the majority leader of the Senate at the time of the 2001 attacks, uh, tells him uh, that he shouldn't use the term war when referring to terrorism. As Bush said, I listened to him, but I disagreed. Secondly, he mentioned that while he supported the provisions of the Patriot Act, he feels, looking back, that it was a mistake to call it that, the Patriot Act. And that was a term that they had used in planning meetings, in discussing what it was, but it shouldn't have actually been put on the bill because he regrets that it hurt Democrats or made anyone look unpatriotic because they voted against it. I cannot doubt his sincerity. It is hard to imagine how the President of the United States could not have affected such a change if he wanted it. It's hard not to be moved somewhat by a passage where President Bush talks about a bioterrorism threat in the White House, one that affected him and his closest staff, including Condoleezza Rice, where the Secret Service came in and informed him that it was possible the White House had been exposed to a biotoxin that would kill all of them in 24 hours, and that a test performed on mice would determine if there indeed was a lethal toxin in the air. While he laughed about the fact that mice were determining the fate of the leader of the free world, it does give you a perspective on what it was like to be president during a time of major crisis in the country, trying to save lives, and his own among them. You can see why he might have felt a sense of obligation. Skipping quickly so as not to deny the former president his right to sell you his book, uh, I'll jump to Iraq. He said that Cheney and Powell argued not to go to Iraq right after 9-11. His advisors had brought it up. Rumsfeld wanted to go directly into Iraq. He decided to go with Cheney and Powell's suggestion and not go immediately in. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. But eventually, as Saddam barred the UN inspectors 
he felt he had to act, or, as he said, the UN and its resolutions would mean nothing. He makes two points about weapons of mass destruction, probably one of the biggest criticisms of his presidency. He felt his decision to go into Iraq was logical. If Saddam had no weapons of mass destruction, why, he asks, why was he behaving the way he did? No one who was innocent would behave the way that Saddam did. Logically, as a war president, and again asserting that he had now responsibility for the safety of Americans, he felt he had to make the assumption. Because he's acting that way, he's hiding something. He said in terms of his critics asking daily about where were the weapons of mass destruction, so was he. He was asking that every day to his military team. He feels that while no weapons of mass destruction were found, there was document evidence that showed that Saddam had a program, even though they were never able to find the actual weapons. In many of these decisions, like the decision to go to war in Iraq, I see very different view than what some of the critics would assign to Bush, that he's you know, not smart or ill, not an intellectual or something like that. I see as a supreme, rational, logical thinker. Logical, rational, but that can get you into trouble at times, too. Good leaders are firm but flexible. Why would Saddam Hussein act the way he did if he wasn't holding weapons of mass destruction? I don't know. There could be many reasons. As it turns out, the one that Saddam gave, he wanted to take a strong stand against the uh, UN inspectors because he didn't want to look weak to Iran. In listening to the former president, there's an inescapable chain of logic to all of his decisions. But yet you find yourself looking for some kind of a, you know, auxiliary here. It, isn't there an X factor perhaps you should be considering? Maybe the information's off. Otherwise, you're making logical, rational decisions based on the faulty information in front of you. On the other hand, he can be defended in this way. We were at war and the country was attacked. At the same time, I found reading this a very engaged Bush. He didn't like what he called small ball. He ridiculed that. Taking on just small issues. That was kind of what President Clinton had resolved to do after his health care program didn't succeed in the House and Senate. He would take on small issues, school uniforms, V-chips, things like this, to get reelected. Bush kind of derides that kind of small ball thinking. He wanted to tackle big issues. He was very disappointed that Republicans and Democrats didn't back his Medicare reform initially, and that many of them voted against it. And he was very disappointed that he didn't have any support at all for his Social Security reform. He regretted doing a flyover over New Orleans uh, during Katrina and called it one of the big mistakes of his presidency. And uh, if you're a partisan, let's say a Democrat, and during the Bush years you were posting on blogs and, and things like that and were wondering if the man ever was getting the message, his memoir makes it clear that he did feel some of the attacks and took it personally. One of the things he hated the most of criticism was when people said, Bush lied, people died. That really affected him personally. I was surprised by the president of the United States, the former president, in effect blaming the governor of Louisiana for 
what happened in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. He does claim that several times he tried to get federal authority to take over the operation. Couldn't get it from the governor. I was a little disappointed on him blaming the lack of immigration reform on Harry Reid not being able to convene the Senate. The president has the ability to summon Congress whenever he sees fit per the Constitution. He was very proud of something that's little talked about, his AIDS program for Africa, where the government invested money in pharmaceuticals for AIDS in Africa. And he was proud of his visits to soldiers. One of the great moments of his presence, he said, was his surprise visit that he made to Iraq in 2003 and hearing all the troops cheer for him for their commander-in-chief. He was proud that he worked with uh, Senator Kennedy on education. He was very proud of the steps that his administration took after the financial crisis. He was proud of the TARP bill, thought it was the right solution. He was amazed that Republicans initially didn't support TARP, and he felt that the economic crisis was going to be tagged to his party and to the Republicans in Congress for that reason. He felt it was a contributing factor to losing the 2008 election. But in the end, some Republicans did support TARP. The majority Democrats in Congress did support TARP. And now, as we look back, and of course, there was a lot of attacks on TARP at the time. People didn't understand it. They weren't sure if it was the right thing to do. It was an awful lot of money. And uh, I did a podcast just about uh, a year and a half ago about this uh, topic. And even at the time of doing that, there was still an air of uncertainty about TARP. What did we do? What was it for? Most of the TARP money has been paid back. Uh, didn't necessarily go back to uh, paying down the debt. It was incurred for it, but uh, most of it did get paid back. And the program seems to have generally worked. And we, you know, we still have bank failures, but not of the scale of the Great Depression. Decision Points joins the ranks of presidential memoirs and is, may I say, a preemptive strike at history. I don't agree 100% with the former president's assertion that presidents can only be judged in 20 years' time, which, by the way, would mean we could only talk about the Clinton presidency now. But there is a change that occurs after that period of time. I think you can still discuss fairly current presidents. You just have to remember that the politics are still hot and just talk accordingly. If any history is written now about the George W. Bush presidency, they will have to deal with his commentary on issues, his side of the story. When any president speaks, that should be of interest to lovers of history and politics. If you disagree with President Bush, then you actually should read this book. I don't think he's going to win you over. I don't think so at all, because he doesn't introduce a lot of new arguments you haven't heard before, but he does add perspective. This is a short one, but I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, and if you like the program, please tell somebody about it. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.